This is the message given by Pastor James Lim during the morning worship service at Faith Presbyterian Church, Long Beach, California, for February 25th, 2024. The title of the message is Kingdom Righteousness. Well, we come now to the reading and preaching of God's Word. We continue uh, through the Gospel of Matthew, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, you can follow along if you don't have a Bible with you in our bulletin or the slide behind me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask him for uh, help in understanding what we're about to hear. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you acknowledging that apart from your Holy Spirit, your word makes no sense to us that it can only be heard with spiritual ears. Uh, it can only be truly comprehended with spiritual eyes wide open. Lord, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? Would you unstop our ears and peel the scales from our eyes that we might behold Jesus and hear from you? Lord, would you bless me, your servant, as I read and especially as I preach? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word, beginning in verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Well, I've entitled uh, this morning's sermon, Kingdom Righteousness. And I hope as, I, as we go through it, you'll understand uh, why I titled it that way. You know, we live in a day, an age, where the truth and validity of the Bible are being undermined in so many different ways. There's, for example, theological liberalism that many of us in the OPC uh, are very familiar with that says the Bible is just one of many revelations of God and that all religions lead to the same God. And so why bother? Uh, modernity, for example, goes on to say that the Bible is man-made, a man-made collection of religious scripture that points us to some amorphous, bodiless, nameless, faceless truth. But it is not the truth with a capital T, let alone God's truth. Because people can be wrong, people can be flawed. Uh, Post-modernity says that you can't know the truth because everything is just a matter of opinion or perspective or interpretation. 
Uh, they will, they'll say something like, you have your truth and I have my truth. And so what you call biblical truth is just a matter of opinion and you can't call it the truth. Our culture believes that the Bible no longer applies to us at all. That it is some religious text written thousands of years ago uh, in, a, in, a, in a long lost past, uh, far away. And so what does it have to say to us today? And in the opinion of many, not much. Now these are ideas that originate from outside the church. From non-Christians, people who have, who who may call themselves Christians, maybe, and people who think that they ought to have an opinion about Christianity, and they tell us uh, what we're supposed to believe. However, there are Christians within the church who may unknowingly adopt these, this way of thinking, hook, line, and sinker. There are Christians in the church who may not say it like this, but they live as if it were true, right? As if modernity, post-modernity, and the Bible no longer applies. And so they pick and choose what to believe and and what to obey uh, according to what suits them, according to how they feel, like a salad bar or like a buffet. They just kind of pick this truth and, and this law and this truth and that truth, but whatever they don't like, they just pass by as if it doesn't apply to them. Uh, They'll chalk it up to that was then and this is now. Maybe in some areas of your life, that's the way you think. That there are parts of scripture or or uncomfortable truths that you just kind of want to keep at arm's length and you kind of just want to have this blissful, blissful Uh, ignorance of or you just say you know what Jesus abolished it I'm a New Testament Christian I don't have to follow that here as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus tells us that we can't live that way we can't pick and choose what we want to believe and what we want to obey according to how we feel according to the circumstances by which we live. God's word is, is true or it's not. It applies or it doesn't. It's abolished or it continues, albeit fulfilled in Christ. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Jesus teaches us how God's word and his law still apply to us today in the kingdom of heaven. So how does, the, the, how does God's word apply to us today? Uh, it still applies to us because Jesus came not to abolish God's law, but to fulfill it. After teaching us that we're both salt and light, you know, in the earlier sections, just the prior uh, passage, now he tells us how to be salt and light He reminds us of the ongoing relevance of God's word and his law in particular. This is the distinctive way in which Christians ought to live that makes us salt and that helps us to shine light as we live according to God's word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, which itself speaks to us of the saltiness, of the distinctiveness of living for God by faith in Christ. 
Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. You see, Jesus might be responding to two criticisms here in the context of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has been teaching uh, the word of God as one who had authority and not as uh, their, their scribes. In other words, Jesus is teaching God's word in such a distinctive way that he's speaking from his own authority about God's word and through God's word. Almost as if he is God. Almost as if he was speaking God's word. As if he was the one who inspired these words. And as he's doing that, the scribes and the Pharisees see him teach in such a different way that they're wondering if he's usurping the authority of, of God's word. But in actuality, what Jesus is doing with his authoritative power as, as the Son of God, as the Messiah, is that he's actually teaching with authority against the man-made laws that the scribes and Pharisees were teaching. He was teaching against and pushing back against the, the laws that had accrued over the years in which people were saying, God forbids us, he commands us to do this, and so you have to follow all of these rules in order to obey this one rule, this one command, this one teaching that God gives us in the Old Testament. And so what Jesus is doing is he's pushing back against those man-made religious cultural uh, add-ons to the word of God. And the scribes and the Pharisees are interpreting that as, oh, Jesus is abolishing the law because he's abolishing our uh, customs. He's abolishing our traditions. And so they're, they're accusing him of abolishing the law by saying these particular man-made laws no longer apply. But, when, in a, but in actuality, Jesus is actually clarifying his teaching on the law here uh, against those accusations. And so what is that clarifying teaching? How is he clarifying what he's saying? He didn't come to abolish God's word as if it no longer applies to us or as if it's no longer in effect. Right? Look at what he says there. Do not think. I came to abolish the law or the prophets, right? This, the law and the prophets was shorthand for the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi and everything in between. He says, I've not come to abolish them, but listen, to fulfill them. That's, a, that's very different from abolishing them. See, to abolish something is to do away with it as if it was null and void, And so if Jesus didn't come to abolish it, then what did he come to do? He came to fulfill it. And what does that mean? It means he came to bring fulfillment or accomplish the purpose for which God gave it. See, God doesn't, he never gives us anything without a purpose for it. And so what Jesus is saying is that the whole of the Old Testament is given to God's people for a purpose and he's come to fulfill that purpose. And so how did he do that? How does Jesus fulfill the whole of God's Old Testament word? 
Uh, he does it because the, uh, because the Old Testament is full of types and shadows. These are persons, places, events, commands, prohibitions. Everything about the Old Testament was meant to point beyond itself. It was meant to be fulfilled, to be done. For example, let me give you one example. Uh, take Genesis 3.15. When God pronounces a, a curse in the form of a prophecy when Adam and Eve fell into sin, he proclaimed that the seed of the woman, a future uh, descendant of Eve, will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Uh, a, a descendant, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, of Satan. That there's going to be, throughout the whole of Scripture, a battle between the two seeds. And you can even summarize all of Old Testament Scripture as one great battle of the two seeds and then coming to an end when Jesus comes to crush the head of Satan through the gospel, but at the same time have his heel crushed when he's hung upon the cross. And so... The Old Testament, think of the whole of the Old Testament as a kind of prophecy in one way or another that is going to come to pass, and when it comes to pass, it's going to be fulfilled. So when God commanded that Israel sacrifice a clean animal, a blood bull or a bull or a goat or a lamb, to be sacrificed in the place of the one who sinned and the one who makes the offering. Uh, that the people of God were to see that somebody else is, something else is going to take their place because of their sin. Instead of the knife being plunged into us as a punishment for what we have done, what we deserve, it is going into a substitute. And, and the whole sacrificial system is like a prophecy that one day, it won't be an animal that takes our place. It's going to be a man. And it brings, and you can see the fulfillment of the whole of the sacrificial system when John the Baptist beheld Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That the prophecy and the type and the shadow of those sacrificial animals are fulfilled when Jesus comes and gives himself as a once-for-all sacrifice. Uh, in his humanity, not as, a, as an animal, but in his humanity be, to be a true substitute for sinful people. The same goes for the law of God. I don't, we, I don't think we uh, think of it this way, but even the law of God in its moral, right, in its ongoing kind of differentiation between what is right and wrong, good and evil, that is relevant throughout the history of the world, uh, that it never ends, right? It's not as if one day something is morally wrong and then the next day it's not, right? It is the perpetual ongoing revelation of the character of God to be lived out by all his creatures, all his moral creatures, that's you and me. Or the civil law, uh, the laws that were given uniquely to Israel that speak to 
how people ought to live in a, in a, in a government or in a country. And the principles of those civil laws that speak to what is right and wrong uh, continue as well, but the actual laws don't apply to us, uh, not in the same way they applied to the Old Testament Jews. Or the ceremonial laws under which, for example, the sacrificial animals fell. That all the laws that God gave in the Old Testament yearn for a perfect obedience to those laws. That God gave those laws so that people were supposed to know his revealed will and it was supposed to be perfectly obeyed. But yet, because of our fall into sin, we don't keep those laws perfectly, right? We don't, we don't obey them the way that we ought. We don't, or we're not motivated by, uh, to do them for the glory of God. And we do them for selfish reasons, for our own glory. Sometimes we, do, we don't do what we're supposed to do, and we do what we're not supposed to do in one way or another, in thought, word, and deed. And so we will never, ever perfectly obey God's law. But one day, and here's the the thing, God gave us those laws so that one day someone will do it perfectly. And so when Jesus says, I've come not to abolish it, but to fulfill it, Jesus is saying, I am the one who came to fulfill uh, the the law perfectly. And And here's the grace of the gospel. He doesn't do it for himself because Jesus is sinless. He's righteous. Jesus is God. In him, there's, uh, he's light, and in him, there's no darkness at all. He was made like us in every way, yet without sin. He did all that God commanded without spot or blemish. He was perfect, but he didn't do it for himself. He did it for us to fulfill it for us because we couldn't do it for ourselves. And so think of, think of the whole of the Old Testament like a lock. A lock that uh, we, we can see. And the, and the only key that opens that lock, the only key that opens every prophecy, every person who, as a type, uh, every, every event, uh, every promise, every command, Jesus is the key that unlocks it all to show us the glory of God in the gospel and what he does throughout his life, death, and resurrection, his ascension, and his sitting at God's right hand, and even when he returns. All of that uh, is fulfilled, uh, fulfills the whole of the Old Testament and the New This is what Jesus meant. He said it this way when he walked the earth. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. This is what he said to his disciples on the road to Emmaus when they couldn't recognize him after he was raised from the dead. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, right? The law and the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. See, the whole of the Old Testament is about Jesus. The Old Testament is the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul meant when he said, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ, 2 Corinthians 1.20. And this is why Jesus says here in verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, right? Not even the smallest marking of the word of God, right? Every jot and tittle, uh, as some of us uh, understand from the King, old King James Version. You know, every, every crossing of the T and every dotting of the I in the word will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And this has four very important applications for us. First, it means all of Scripture points us to Jesus. The best and only way to truly understand any part of scripture from Genesis to Revelation is to see it through the lens of the person and work of Christ. He is promised in the old and fulfilled in the new. This is why I preach the way that I do by connecting everything to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you you will never fully fully get the purpose for which God gives any given scripture unless and until you connect it to its fulfillment in Christ. Uh, Not to do so, and this is maybe kind of uh, not the easiest way to to say it, but it's sub-Christian. It's a sub-Christian way of reading the scripture. It falls short of reading scripture in a Christian way. Why? Because If I were, for example, to preach from the Old Testament and I didn't connect it to the gospel, I could preach that same message in a Jewish synagogue and everyone can say yes and amen. They would not be, they would not hear the gospel. They would not see the full purpose for which it was given to be fulfilled in Christ. Uh, And sometimes you and I read the scriptures that way too. We read the Old Testament Uh, separated from the New Testament. We read it uh, without seeing its fulfillment or its connection in some way to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon used to say that every road in England leads to London. And so also every road in the Bible leads to Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. Second, the second application is that all of scripture has ongoing relevance for our lives. If Jesus came not to abolish it, but to fulfill it, then it still applies to us in and through Jesus. If he's the the only mediator between God and, and men, then it stands to reason that the scripture applies to us through the mediation of Christ through the, the, the prism of his life, death, and resurrection. So it doesn't apply to us directly as if Jesus never came. 
but applies to us through and in Christ and teaches us the way that we ought to go to walk by faith. Paul says that all of the Old Testament are examples for our instruction, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. It teaches us what we ought to believe, how we ought to see, think, and live by faith. It commands us and gives us examples by which to live. It warns us and teaches us what to avoid and how to avoid it. It preaches to us the gospel and how to apply its truth in our lives by faith. Now here's, now here's an important detail here. It, it teaches how to apply its truth in our lives by faith for obedience to the glory of God. Uh, I don't know about you, but, but sometimes when we think about grace, we don't associate it with obedience, right? Because we're saved by grace, not by works. And that's true. That's absolutely true. But we're saved by grace in, not, not, be, not because of our good works, but we are saved by grace to do good works. And that's, that's a, a vast difference between salvation by works and salvation for good works. Because think about it. Think about it for a moment. Think about it. If Jesus saves us from our sin, does he save us then to continue in sin? No. In order for Jesus to save us from sin, it means he saves us from sin in order to live for righteousness. In order to, when we didn't obey God, he saves us then to obey God. Not in order to be saved, but because we've already been saved. That it is an evidence, it is a fruit, it is proof that God's grace works in us. And so God's grace does not work at cross purposes. It doesn't work against obedience. It actually enables and empowers us to obey. Thirdly, all of scripture is relevant for all of our lives in faith and godliness. See, we don't think, sometimes this is why we don't read the Bible as we, as we ought to. This is why we don't uh, apply the Bible and the truths the way that we ought to because in some way, in some deep, dark corner of our hearts, we think that God's word doesn't apply to us in every situation. We, not, we may not be theological liberals, who think that God's word doesn't apply to us, but sometimes we live as if we live like it. When we're dealing, for example, when we're dealing with anger issues, we try to control our anger through behavior modification, right? Through mantras, through exercises, uh, through trying to kind of pull ourselves out of the circumstance and just kind of blow off steam some other way so that we don't get angry at our spouse or our children. And, and that's behavior modification because it only works on the outside. But God wants us to follow him from the inside. So we don't go to God's word to get to the root issues, the root heart issues of our anger. Which can arise from an idol of, of power or control, right? We get angry because we didn't get our way. We get angry because our, our, our friends, our spouses, our coworkers, our children didn't do what we told them to do. 
or they're pushing back against us and we get angry. Why? Because we are, the idol of control and power has been messed with. But God's word speaks to the very heart of those issues. And what are they? By applying the gospel, the truths of the gospel that reminds us that Jesus, who was God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. That he humbled himself and gave himself uh, and, and gave up the prerogatives of his deity and became a humble servant. He gave up his power in order to save us. Right? He, he prayed at the, in the darkness of Gethsemane, not my will, but thy will be done. He was a gentle and lowly servant who loved us and was patient with us. And it is that, that life, that heart, that grace that he himself lived in our place for us, he gives to us at any given situation so that when our spouse or our kids, they don't do what we want them to do or they fight against us, we, we are humbled. We don't get angry. Our hearts are changed from one of control and pride to one of humility and compassion. And so if we humble ourselves like Jesus, we don't have to get our way. We don't have to get angry. We can be patient and give grace to those uh, so we don't get sinfully angry. Do you, see, do you see how God's word is applicable to that? Maybe one more example is when we're anxious. Jesus says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, make your request known to God with thanksgiving. We will not be anxious when we think about what God has given us already when we pray. We will not be anxious because we know that God gives us everything that we need. Right? If we're anxious, it's because we're not trusting God to give us what we need. And the scriptures uh, have give, give us the resources uh, relevant for all all of life if we would presuppose that it's still that it is relevant and it does apply to us in every area of life and then fourthly it means we must obey God's commands and not minimize its importance see Jesus tells us what all of this means for us practically we must do all that Jesus commands and teach others to do the same Look at what he says there in verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus didn't come to abolish it. He didn't come to relax it or lower its standard. He came to fulfill it by accomplishing it. Every iota, every dot of it. And this is the way that, that Jesus fulfills the word of God in the gospel in order to save us. He fulfills it for us in his active and passive obedience. This is uh, the, the theological ways of saying that Jesus fulfilled it for us 
by taking our sin and suffering the penalty and the punishment that we deserved. That's why he died on the cross. And he fulfilled it in obeying all that we failed to do. Obeying it and accomplishing, earning for us a perfect righteousness by which we can stand before God and enter into the kingdom of heaven. So he did all of these to fulfill it for us, but he also did it to fulfill it in us as we grow in our sanctification, as we grow in holiness, as we grow to be more and more like Jesus. That is where the proof is in the pudding of whether we've been saved by Christ if we become more and more like Christ. And so we can't relax the law. Why? Because Jesus didn't, you know, Jesus didn't relax the law for himself. See, God's just demands, uh, because God is just, he could not lower it or else he would go against his own character. If If we winked at any little sin, he would have to wink at all sin and he would no longer be just and therefore he would no longer be God. And so in order for that perfect law to be perfectly obeyed, he had to do it himself, and so he sent Jesus into the world to fulfill it for us. And this is why Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. See, the only way to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes is to have a perfect righteousness which we receive by faith in Christ Jesus. We have to have his perfect righteousness and nothing less will do. And so my question to you this morning is do you have this perfect righteousness for you and is being fulfilled in you through faith in Jesus Christ? Of righteousness that exceeds even the most obedient of scribes and Pharisees who, who on the outward obey every law but inwardly it's flawed. Do you have a perfect righteousness by which you can stand before God on judgment day and be accepted before him? Or do you have a righteousness that you're trying to accomplish on your own and it, it'll never be good enough? See, if you put your faith in Christ this morning, friends, if you put your faith in Christ this morning, in the gospel, Jesus clothes you with a perfect righteousness so that when God sees you, he doesn't see you in your filthy rags of your your sins and your own self-righteousness, your flawed obeying of the law, but he sees you as righteous and perfect and good and beautiful in Jesus Christ. He sees Jesus in front of you as if you were the one. This is what justified means. Just as if I had never sinned and just as if I had always obeyed perfectly every day. And just, and, and even more than that, he gives you his righteousness so that you might grow into it. Uh, let me close with this idea. When in justification, Jesus is our elder brother who gives us 
uh, the robes of righteousness. And if you've ever had, if you've ever had a hand-me-down from an older brother, you know, and you're kind of small or doesn't fit you, so it's a little awkward, but you still wear it. So that's your justification. It, you, you're wearing it, and God sees you in the righteousness of Christ. But in sanctification, you grow more and more into the robes of, of righteousness and holiness that Jesus has given you. Uh, I remember giving my brother uh, one, of my, um, uh, one of my shirts, and, uh, and he was a real, really scrawny kid in middle school, but, but, in, but after middle school, he, he was working out, putting on, you know, putting on muscle, eating right, and, and he grew into that shirt. And that's what Jesus does for us in the gospel. And that's why Jesus fulfills, he didn't come to, fu- to abolish the law, but to fulfill it for us so that through faith in Christ, he would fulfill it in us and that we would show that we already have, we have already entered the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for, we thank you for your word that does not pass away, but is fulfilled in Christ. Help us then, Lord, to live uh, by that word. Help us not to live as if it was abolished, but fulfilled in Christ. And so, Lord, would you fulfill it in us and through us as we live in the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.